Well, good evening, men. Thank you for letting me come stand up here. Just by you being here, you are giving tacit approval to me standing here. So, thank you. Uh, Floyd, you did great. Yeah? Well, it wasn't quite seven, but that's why I said seven, so that you'd come in around ten. So, see, we're like we're all working together here. Good job. Um, so, uh, so I guess for you guys mostly, you've heard a lot of this already, youth group guys. So basically for about the last six months, uh, we spent a big section on Romans 1, uh, and we spent a bunch of time talking about heaven. Uh, and so those are the things that have been rolling around in my mind for most of this year. Uh, and so you guys are going to hear kind of a condensed version of those probably 15 or 20 talks on, on those things. Uh, kind of melded together here. Now, uh, I'm going to kind of give you two analogies that are going to carry the evening, that I want you to kind of keep these two things going on in your head. So let's lay out the first one. How many of you guys know what the Meritoret River is? Have you heard that word before? Does anybody know where the Meritoret River is? You know it, but you don't know that you know it. Okay? I'll prove it to you. How many of you guys have seen Saving Private Ryan? Okay, what river was the bridge going over that they were protecting? The Meritoret River, okay? Now, the, the way that, that, that the point of the story is, right? So I don't know if you're terribly familiar with uh, the French topography or the shape of the country, but there's kind of this big knot on the uh, northwest portion of the country. Uh, picture like a fatter version of Florida, right? It's just kind of a, like a knot up there. Uh, and the Normandy landings happened at the end of this knot. And so in order to get all of the armies down into France, uh, they had to come through that rather narrow portion of land. And the Meritoret River and the Douve River cover most of that. So if you are trying to get in all of your infantry, get in all of your tanks, you're going to have to cross those rivers. If the Germans are trying to send reinforcements, they're going to have to cross those rivers. Whoever controls those rivers is a big deal because you're the one you're allowed to let your tanks come in now. And so what both sides were doing is that they were destroying lots of the bridges on this river so that there was these choke points, right? If you can't cross any of these other 10 bridges, where are you going to go, right? So then you don't have to worry about a sneak attack because you know where they're going to cross. So then it became a fight for these bridges. So even though the, the idea of Saving Private Ryan is a Hollywood fiction, the idea of a, a small group protecting that bridge was real. That really did happen, uh, protecting that bridge for the Meritoret River. Now, if you don't control that bridge, you are slowing down the entire Allied expeditionary force. It's a big deal, right? And if you don't control that bridge, you don't control that river, the next kind of big, big city up the way was called St. Lo. If you don't control St. Lo, you can't get to Caen. And if you can't get to Caen, you can't get to Paris. And if you can't get to Paris, you can't get to Berlin. This bridge was a big deal in the grand scheme of the war. Now, there were several privates who were in charge of protecting this bridge. Do you think that they understood that this bridge is connected to Berlin in some way? No, not in the slightest. Hey, boys, protect this bridge. Why? Shut up. Protect this bridge. 
right? That was the idea. If you protect this bridge, eventually, as Tom Hanks says, we're going to all get the big boat home. You are, as we've talked about all year, a man on a mission. Sometimes you are only concerned with your bridge, and rightfully so. Your bridge is terribly important. The thing in your life that you are working towards for the glory of God is incredibly important. It is God-ordained that that is your bridge, the thing that you are supposed to work for. But there is a much larger picture out there that you are a part of. Okay, wrap all that together. Analogy number one. Okay, analogy number two that's going to help the night. In the world of football, what's the goal? Right, to win the game. Now, you do that by scoring points for those of you not familiar with American football. Now, the best way to score points is what? Touchdown, right? You get the most points for doing that. And it's not just that you get points in order to help win the game. It's an important thing because it, it means wins and losses. That means success. That means Super Bowl rings. That means contracts. That means performance bonuses. That means awards. That means entire careers. That means entrance to the Hall of Fame. Touchdowns are a big deal to the point where anytime you're talking about any sort of offensive player, that's one of the first statistics that comes up. How are they when it comes to touchdowns? Now imagine you are about to score a touchdown in the NFL. It's a pretty good feeling, right? There's a few different ways this can happen. Imagine you are completely, you went the wrong way. They, the whole play was going that way and you went this way. You're on defense. But for some dumb reason, the quarterback thinks that you're on his team and turns around and throws it to you. So you catch it on the two-yard line. All 21 other people on the field are over that way. What's in front of you? The goal line. What are you thinking about? Glory, right? I'm just going to waltz right in. This is going to be the easiest touchdown of my life thinking about fans cheering. You're thinking about maybe jumping into the crowd. You've got your touchdown celebration figured out with your kids. Maybe you're going to jump into the Salvation Army pot, right? You've got it all figured out. Now picture it a different way. You've picked up a fumble, but in the process, your leg was hurt badly. You've got 40 yards to go. Five yards behind you is the entire offensive line. You're limping. You're out of gas. They are about to land on you. Is that motivation to score a touchdown? Oh, yes. Is all of the fans cheering in your celebration and the waltz into the end zone, is that motivation to score a touchdown? Oh, yes. These, these are both great things. Fear and glory. It's a powerful combo. And they motivate us differently, sometimes depending on the day, sometimes depending on the person. But I want to lay out for you tonight two motivations to be the man on the mission. Two motivations to guide you. So we're going to start in Romans 1, if you want to flip there. And Floyd, you did a great job. Almost the last words out of your mouth are the first verse that I'm going to talk about. Romans 1, 16. 
Theologians have called the book of Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. This is where the gospel is on display in all of its glory. And it's been said that verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are the theme of the entire book. So this is it. And it's where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, that being the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then after this, Paul begins to unfold in great detail the substance of that theme. With the statement beginning in verse 18. For, right? When you see for in light of or because of, it's a different way to look at that. So for, verses 16 and 17, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth or who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Paul's wonderful work of Romans begins with this idea of the wrath of God. Not a very popular introduction. Right? In modern Christendom, we talk about love, we talk about joy, we talk about happiness. We talk about abundant living. We talk about forgiveness. We talk about peace. But to a large degree, we avoid this subject. Have you ever begun a presentation of the gospel to someone in front of you and said, hey, by the way, did you know that the wrath of God is revealed against you? I haven't read uh, Seven Habits of the Highly Effective People or How to Win Friends and Influence People in quite a while, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't start off with, oh, by the way, the wrath of God is coming for you. By the way, my name's Dixon. Try it sometime. Let me know how it goes. Maybe it's wonderfully persuasive. But this idea of a God of wrath does not swallow easily in our society. How can God be a God of wrath, be a God of anger, be a God of fury, God of terror? God's attributes, as we see in the scriptures, are perfectly balanced. If God did not have his wrath, if God did not have anger, then he would not be God. It's important that we understand Understand this. Yes, God is perfect in his love. And he is equally perfect in his hate, in his wrath. Just as totally as he loves, so does he totally hate. His love is unmixed. His hate is unmixed. In speaking of Christ, Hebrews 1.9 says, You have loved righteousness and you have hated sin. In order to understand how great God's love is, we need to know how great his hate is. If we understand that God hates sin so profoundly, then we will find it all the more amazing that he can love sinners, that he can draw near. Love and grace are two of the most important words in the Bible, and 
very popular in modern Christian songs, but they are void of meaning if we don't also understand what God is opposed to. Now, the Bible is filled with these sorts of statements. Right? We see it all over the place. Genesis 6 through 8, what happens in those chapters? God floods the world. Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, we see God's wrath against the people. And Genesis 19, against the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Against the Egyptians in Exodus 7 through 12, with the plagues that he lays out. We see it over and over, pouring out against the Israelites, against the Israelites' enemies. We see it specifically pour out against Aaron and Miriam. We see it pour out against the family of Saul. We see the angel of the Lord come and wipe out 186,000 of Sennacherib's army. What's the objection that's so easy to throw out after I give that list? Oh, well, that's the Old Testament, right? That's the old mean God. What does Hebrews 13.8 say? Any, any uh, Awana's kids in here? What is Hebrews 13.8 or Awana's adults? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no such thing as the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. There is the God as talked about in the Old Testament, and God is talked about in the New Testament. But to prove a point, and not just to take my word for it, you know what? There's also mentions of God's wrath in the New Testament. What's the most famous verse for poster boards at a football game? John 3.16. What does it say? Yeah. For God so loved the world. Well, and I don't, I don't want to say it in a mocking manner because it is a glorious statement. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is a, the most popular uh, verse for posters because it's so earth-shatteringly wonderful and true. But guess what else it says in that same chapter? Nay, 20 verses later. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that does not believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him still. It's the same speech. Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, let No man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things, and he's talking about the sin that was rampant there, because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. The Bible says that God will pour out his wrath on unbelieving men. That's kind of scary. Let's make it a little scarier. Let's dig into what this wrath is a little bit. Let's see how the scriptures describe it. And we can see several things about it here in verse 18 of Romans 1. Um, There's several questions that we want to look at. Some of these are way more obvious than others to answer. For instance, I bet you can answer this one. What kind of wrath is described in verse 18? And almost always when I ask a question and wait for an answer, you don't have to be original. It's an open book test. 
what sort of wrath is, is described here? What kind of wrath is it? Oh, hey, here we go. You cheater, you remember from the lesson. Yeah. What kind of wrath is it? It's the wrath of God. That describes what it is. It is divine wrath. It is not like anything else in this world. It's not like my wrath. It's not like your wrath. It's not like when we get angry. It's not like when we get mad. Because when we get mad, we're just offended at something that has gone against our personal preferences. Honestly, when was the last time you got mad about something and you think that Jesus would have been standing next to you mad about the same thing? I, I don't remember that in my life, and that's not because I have not gotten angry. This is the wrath of God. It is not like my wrath. It is not like your wrath. And just like every other attribute of God, it is perfect. It's perfect wrath. It is righteous wrath. It is the right kind of wrath. It is holy wrath. Picture the sort of wrath, Father, if you saw someone hurting your child with impunity. It's that sort of wrath. You're not going to ask questions. You're not going to shadow box. You will fly into that situation and handle the problem. Consequences out the window if someone is hurting your child. The word that's used here in the Greek is orge, and it's this idea of it's a settled indignation. It's not a momentary fury. It's not like blowing your top. It's different. It is settled. Now, when is this wrath? The time of this wrath. Look at what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed... This is a present tense verb, so literally it could be saying it's being constantly revealed. right? It's revealed in the present. When is it? Right now. It's also right now. It's also right now. It is ongoing. It is ongoing. The verb here, uh, you may not know it from Greek, but you know it from a Mel Gibson movie, Apocalypto. I'm sure the Greeks would say it a little bit differently, but it's the same idea. It's probably like hapakulupto or something like that. But it's this idea of uncovering or uh, bringing something to light, making it known. God's wrath is always being made known. Every, term around, every time you turn around, you see it. Do you realize this, that God's wrath is all around us? People live and die. That's God's wrath. Nations rise and fall. God judges sin. It is constantly being revealed. What kind of wrath is it? Where is it pointed? It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's its nature. It is a wrath against sin. It's not an uncontrolled irrational, flying around fury. It is directed towards sin. It's not like we have seen way too many times lately 
in our country of just someone with a gun shooting indiscriminately into crowds like happened in Texas just last week. It's not that. It's not taking vengeance out on the nearest person. It is discriminating. It is careful. It is pointed at unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. This idea of ungodliness is speaking about our relationship with God. That's the idea. That's what the focus is here. God is angry because men are not rightly related to him. They're not godly. In the book of Jude, verse 14, it talks about a prophecy from long ago saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all the ungodly and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If you're breaking down your Bible study here, get out a highlighter. You just saw a word repeated several times in one verse. Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. They are not related rightly with God. And they are unrighteous. God's wrath is set against this ugliness, this non-righteousness. Watson says that sin is to the soul as rust is to gold, as stain is to beauty. Sin in the scripture is called a menstrual rag. It is called a plague sore. It is called whatever sort of modern filth you want to think of. That is sin. It's not a little white lie. It's not a little cute back-talking. It is ugly. It is unrighteous. And God's wrath is exposed against it. Now, the other objection that you're going to hear sometimes about this idea. Hey, I'm a good person. Are we? Are we? Who is this wrath revealed against? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All? All. 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 Now, this is a men's group, right? We should do some men things, like have a push-up contest or something, okay? The winner of this push-up contest will need to do a thousand push-ups. Who's volunteering? Okay? We've got some people in this room might be able to crank out a couple. We've got, I mean... Okay, you know who you are. Who does push-ups a lot here? Who thinks you could, like, right now, does anybody think they could do 50 push-ups right now? If we, I'm not going to actually call you up, but, like, does anybody think they could do 50? Okay. Could anybody do 100? Like, you would pull your wallet out and say, I can do 100 right now. Okay. 200? Yeah, I bow out, right? He's, he's leaving it around 200, okay? That's incredible. But, but the winner needs 1,000. Or 10,000 or whatever number I made up just a minute ago. I forget. The goal 
is way more than we can do. Some people are different, like a man that can do almost 200 push-ups. That's different than me. But it's not good enough. Some are better, absolutely. But the standard is that his wrath is going to be poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Nobody escapes. And just so we don't push the analogy too far and think, well, if he really practiced, maybe he could get up to a thousand. The standard is actually a billion. Okay, let's just throw the number so far out there that it's totally impossible to make. Now, why? Why is this wrath being revealed? Because men are holding the truth in unrighteousness. You could also say that men are constantly attempting to suppress the truth by their sin. Sin in our hearts is so strong that it will assault the truth. Sin always assaults the truth. Now we learn, carrying on in these verses, that the knowledge of God is revealed all over. In the same way that his wrath is revealed, the knowledge of God abounds, but men suppress it. Why? Because we love the darkness more than we love the light. Believer, before you came to Christ, was that not you? That you loved the darkness more than you loved the light? Some of you, even now, love the darkness. That's what we do. Our deeds are evil. Can you finish this psalm? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why does he say such a thing? Because he doesn't want to be there if there is a God, because he's in trouble. That's what a fool would say. If you are not a believer in Christ, the wrath of God waits for you. It's this idea that God has dammed up his wrath. He has put a barrier across the river of his wrath. The first time that sin was ever committed, God began storing up his wrath against that sin. And as humanity grew more and more wicked, the store of his wrath grew greater and greater. And it's being held back by the patience of God for no other reason. God foresaw us. All of our sin that would be committed. All of the sin after the time of Christ. Your sin. My sin. And he stored it behind the dam of his patience. Waiting for the day when his patience would burst. It looked like maybe sin was being tolerated. Do you ever look around our society today and think, sin is just allowed to run. It just looks that way. God's wrath is piling up. That, that dam has broken before. It broke on Calvary. It broke on Christ. And it drowned him. And we stand protected by Christ from that flood. And it will break again one day on those who have not received forgiveness from Christ. 
Christ will take the judgment for those who believe in him, but the ones that do not believe in him will take the judgment themselves. Because they hold the truth and they suppress it with their sin. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Christ has taken the full fury of God's wrath for people that would accept his gracious substitution. First Timothy says that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and Paul says, of whom I am the chief. Do we view ourselves this way? If you think about your own sin and it causes you despair because you are unconvinced that Christ can cover such a wicked one as you. I understand that fear, brother. I do. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And we can hear that in two different ways. We can hear that in one way and say, well, good. I don't want that crowd around. Or we can say, well, that's no good because then I won't be there. But the next sentence is so amazing. So he has this list of that church's mail. He is reading their sins in public. Paul didn't just come up with some random list of random sins. He's writing this letter to a specific people. And he lists these sins and says that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. And you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Christ is in the business of saving sinners. If you don't know this, I hope you will allow him to save you before the consequences of your sin become permanent. This is one of the motivations for us. Why are we on a mission? Because this wrath is going to be poured out on the world. And there is no escaping it apart from Christ. And those who are in Christ hold the answer. Isn't it great to know the answer? To be able to offer it to people who are struggling. To be able to give them hope when they have no hope. To be able to let them feel comforted and loved when they're not getting it anywhere else. Wouldn't it have been amazing to go to little Floyd Dorsey and say, there's a father that loves you that will never harm you. There's a mother that will, uh, 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 there's a God that will love you like a mother and will draw you in close, will never harm you, and will always shower affection on you and will protect you. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to have that answer for that little boy? We have that answer. We have it. 
Let it motivate us to go to those that need to hear it. That was the offensive lineman about to fall on you. That's the motivation to get moving there, the fear of what's coming. Let me try to give you a happier motivation. Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. As a believer, our citizenship is in heaven. That's our proper place. Christ said that he is going away and he is going to prepare a place for us. And it's a place in his father's house. And someday he's going to come back and get us and take us to that place. The right place for us is heaven. That's that's where we're going. That's where Christ intends to take us. Now, as we looked at heaven over several weeks, uh, each of the weeks was kind of based around a question. So I hope you guys remember some of these answers, because some of these are a lot easier. Okay, so, in a basic sense, what is heaven? Somebody remember that answer? What? Yes, there you go. It's a place. Right? Guys, you with me? It's a place. It's where God dwells. It's not a state of mind. It's not a cloud and a harp and an angel. It's an actual place. Okay, this is the easy one. Students, don't answer this one. Where is heaven according to the scriptures? Did you know scriptures give a definitive answer on this? Where is heaven? Except students, be quiet. Anybody? According to the scriptures, where is heaven? Okay, students, where's heaven? Yeah, it's up. That's what the scriptures definitively tell us. It's up. It's up. Now, here's the cool thing, right? We live on a sphere. So there's other people that are opposite from us right now. So when they say up, they're really pointing that way, right? But guess what? They're right too. Heaven is beyond the created universe. It's the sphere where God dwells in infinite presence. Now, what is heaven like? That's a, that's a much deeper question. Uh, we looked at Old Testament passages. We looked at New Testament passages. Uh, and we began to kind of get an idea of the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the incomprehensible nature of it. And the vastness of it. Briefly. There's not going to be a sun or a moon in heaven. Why? What does the scripture say concerning that? It says because God is going to illuminate. God is going to be our light. Okay? So somehow there's an ever-present light coming from everywhere basically. It's not like a giant ball is floating through heaven and you say, oh, there's God. Okay? There is light emanating from everything. Now, remember from your readings of the scriptures what this physical place is actually like. What are the streets? Right? Pure gold. We have crystal lakes. We have foundational layers of jewels. We have enormous pearls. 
this glory of God is reflecting and refracting off of all of that stuff. Picture uh, a crystal that's hanging in a window and the sunlight hits it just right and those beams of color scatter all over the living room. Picture that, but on a planetary scale. What is heaven going to be like? I wish I could tell you more. The scriptures are so tantalizingly sparse in their details of heaven. Everything that the scriptures say is amazing. And, and it, it barely spills any words for it. The wonder of heaven is going to occupy us for a long, long, long time. Now, who's in heaven? We talked about, yes, God is going to be there. Uh, the holy angels are going to be there. The saints of all of the ages are going to be there. That's going to be great, right? To see all of the old saints. And I don't just mean Drew Brees and Alvin Kamara, right? I mean like, like Sam Mills and Ricky Jackson, right? Uh, like, you know, like Tom Dempsey. I mean like the saints, right? No, but the, I mean, imagine, hey, there's Moses. There's Abraham. The saints of all the ages will be there and we will be in perfect relationship with them. Now, what, what, will, we'll, what will we do there, right? Are we going to sit on clouds with our harps and strum and float around? Uh, no, not exactly. We will adore God and Christ. We will worship. But in the same way that our anger is not like God's anger, heavenly worship is going to be so much more than our worship here. It will be loving, and it will be adoring, and it will come from pure motives, and it will have perfect expression. Our hearts will be right when we worship. We won't be thinking about the problems of the day, or the meal ahead, or whether or not you sound good, or how bad that other guy sounds, or... Is my shoe untied? Or what's the score of the game? Or any of that stuff. We will express worship perfectly. From hearts that are in tuned with God. And perfectly express that devotion. In John 4, Christ speaks about that the Father is seeking true worshipers. Part of the purpose of our redemption is to make us eternal, pure true worshipers. It's just going to pour out of us because of our renewed nature. Think of the last thing that you put in your mouth and you thought, this is glorious. Whatever that bite was for you. Does everybody have something in their mind? Or maybe you go back to that one thing that one time that still just knocked your socks off. You got that thing in your mind? Did anybody have to ask you about how that was? No. You just told them. 
It just, it just poured out of you how great that was, how loving your wife is, how amazing your child, child is, how incredible the Super Bowl win was, right? The things that we love, the things that we adore, it pours out of us. It doesn't have to be compelled. And when we are in heaven and our hearts are right and our bodies are right, the love of the Father in front of us, is the worship is just going to pour forth purely and perfectly. We not only will adore and worship Christ, we will reign with him, which sounds really weird. But scriptures are clear in, in several different places. It speaks that we are going to reign with Christ. Revelation 5.10, Revelation 26, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Timothy 2. What does that mean? It means that we will have some sort of sphere of responsibility. Every believer. And we will operate under the delegated authority of God. It's the same thing that we saw Christ do. Christ said he only did what the Father shows him. And Christ reigns over an inheritance given to him by the Father. We will do the same. We will be given authority to reign. Does that scare anybody else? Just me. Like, I, I mean, I can mess some stuff up pretty good, right? I like to style myself as I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a burgeoning woodworker. Like, if you look at some of the stuff I've made from kind of over there, you'll be like, wow, that's really nice. But if you get kind of close, there's probably more caulk there than you thought there was. Those seams aren't perfect. The joints aren't exactly right. There's not a lot of stuff I should just be solely in charge of. But when we are delegated this authority and we are given this authority in heaven, this sphere to reign, guess what? We will reign with perfect wisdom. We'll never make a mistake. We'll never make a misjudgment. We'll never err. Everything that we do will be perfect and right. Does that sound enticing? Does that sound good? It's something that I never really thought about before this study, right? My idea of heaven, and just briefly, I won't go into the details that I did with these kids, uh, but my idea was heaven when I first came up with my idea of heaven. I was around ninth or 10th grade. I had a good buddy named Tommy. Me and Tommy played basketball every opportunity we could get. And so heaven for us was a basketball court with eight NBA stars. Now at the time, you're talking Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Scottie Pippen. And they were just standing around all bored because they needed two more people. Here comes me and Tommy. In our new uh, white Ferrari Testarossas, because we saw the poster from the Miami Vice TV show, uh, and there happened to be a pizza buffet nearby with our favorite slices of pie. How foolish that was. Right? It never occurred to me that reigning with Christ in perfect wisdom and perfect love would actually be what Christ had in store for me. Praise God that he does not listen to my suggestions. 
in chapter 22 of Revelation. I realized uh, as I was sitting down tonight looking at the screen that I mistyped the verse for Rachel. I said Revelation 21. I mean, it's a good chapter, but it's 22 as well. I was supposed to type. Um, look over at this real quick. So in chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth has come down. And it's been stated that God will be with us, that his dwelling place is now with man. And there will be no more tears and no more sadness because the old order of things has passed away. So in chapter 22, it is describing this place. This angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The curse is over. Every bad thing from the first tree to the last has passed away. All of the wrath that has been stored up has been spent. God now dwells with man. We are redeemed and we are perfect before our God. And there is no longer any night. Why do we look to such things? Why am I offering this as a motivation to be a man on a mission? What's the benefit of looking towards heaven? Well, I think number one, I think it's, it's evidence of your salvation. Do you desire the things of God? Do you desire to be in the heavenlies? Do you long to commune with God? Uh, this past Wednesday, the seniors, it was senior night for the youth group, uh, and they each got a moment to stand up and speak uh, just briefly to uh, the rest of the students that were there, and they were answering two questions. Uh, what thing has been most profitable to you in the youth group? And then the second one, if you could go back to your seventh grade self, what sort of advice would you give now as the, as the old and wizened senior that you are? I think if we were to hang around our uh, legacy believers, as Floyd was called, right, our oaks, I think they would help direct our thoughts towards heaven. I think, I don't really want to say we as young men, because I'm a little grayer than I used to be, but I think we don't think about God enough. We don't think about the reward enough. We have not set our affections on the things above. We have set them here on earth. Why should we look to heaven? 
It's one of the surest ways to a life of joy. If you want to be miserable, focus on this world. You can even make it easier. If you want to be miserable, turn on the nightly news every night for a month and watch it. If you really want to be miserable. If you want to be joyful, get your focus on heaven. Paul says that we can endure suffering in the light of glory. He speaks of it as this eternal weight of glory, far beyond anything that we suffer in this life. Why should we turn our thoughts to heaven and use this as motivation? Well, it's a preservative against temptation and sin. A heavenly mind is a mind set on heavenly things, not earthly things. Paul says in Colossians 3, he says that if we set our minds on the things above, what will we do? Do you know that verse? We will mortify, we will slay, we will kill the deeds of the flesh. For the believer whose mind is on heaven, they are no easy prey for Satan. Why else should we focus on the heavenlies? Why else should we look to our place with Christ? Well, it honors God. It honors God. We are demonstrating our love for God. We are demonstrating that he is worthy of everything that we do, everything that we have to quote-unquote suffer for him. We're saying that he's worth it. We are dishonoring God if we say that this earth is more important than him. God's love through the ages has been set on those whom he loves. Why should we not set our hearts on him? We have two different ideas here of what should motivate us. It's it's the bigger picture. It's not just our daily life. It's not just our little bridge. It's looking at, at everything. Why should we be a man on a mission to bring the gospel to those around us? For some, we need to describe the wrath of God. We need to lay out the terror because there is no respect of God before their eyes. For some, we paint the picture of the glory that's ahead. And we dazzle them with what God has promised for those who love him. It's so vital that we know both. It's so vital that we know the bridge that spans from God's wrath to God's glory. So that we see what God hates. And we know that that can grow within us apart from Christ. To we see what God rewards. So that we can know that that same love that Christ has is in me. Wonder of wonders. This is the gospel. We were so wretched that Christ, the spotless, blameless, blameless, 
pure son of God. We were so wretched that he had to die for us. There was no other option. But we were so loved that he willingly, gladly, gloriously laid down his life for us. Wonder of wonders. We sang it in the song there. Did you hear it in Rock of Ages? It said, be the double cure. What is that next line? Save from wrath and make me pure. These are the motivations for us to serve God with abandon. Because this world is dying and God's wrath is coming. And there are those that will perish without Christ. And there are those that you are the means by which God is going to call them into eternity. God has laid out for us wonderful works like this. That we could participate in such things. And also, he is going to make us all pure. That we will sit in his presence for the ages to come. And worship in purity. Free expression, to serve in wisdom, to be blown away by him forever, and to look back and say, yes, he was for me the rock of ages. He saved me and he has made me pure. This is our great Christ. This is why we're on a mission, because we have the answer. Whatever their question is, we have the answer, and that answer will see them through for all eternity. Pray with me. Christ, you are for us everything that we need. You have been that for us from before we called your name, when we blasphemed you, when we turned against you, when we belittled you, when we demeaned you. You still came in love. You could, in your righteous judgment, wipe us out. And yet you draw us close. How can you be so loving? How can we not honor you? Father, would you turn within us our minds towards you? Would you turn our hearts towards pure service? Would you turn our hands towards service that is honoring towards you? you turn our worship to be honoring. You have laid out for us eternity because of your work. All we can do is plead Christ and you tell us that that's all we need to do. So Father, thank you that you have looked on us, that you have granted faith, that you have granted repentance. If there are brothers in here who have not called on you, would you be kind to them? like you have been kind to the rest of us. Father, we deserve nothing from you, and yet you freely give day after day. So we thank you. Help us to worship you and serve you more purely in light of your great love for us. Amen.